0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern,
1: and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: Today, our guest who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network will be Senator Todd Young of Indiana, who serves on the Senate Finance Committee, which has a health care subcommittee he serves on. This committee oversees Medicare. He's also active in veterans health care oversight.
1: So to help set the stage for this interview, we wanted to discuss Medicare and the history of Medicare in America.
0: Yes, so Medicare is a form of government health care, really government health insurance, because the government doesn't provide the care a doctors do who get money from the government, who gets the money from us, the taxpayers. Let's not forget where they get their money. That's right. So in 1956, the first concept of Medicare came up uh, because of what was called the Dependence Medical Care Act. It provided health care for families of people serving in the meta- military.
1: That makes sense. Right. Trying to provide for them, especially while they're serving.
0: Yes. Well, then uh, President Eisenhower, who, of course, was also General Eisenhower, in 1961, shortly before turning over the office to uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, convened a White House conference on aging, and they proposed a health care plan being paid by the government for Social Security beneficiaries. Of course, the Social Security Act was passed in 1935.
1: And the reason that this became such an issue was there was such an increase in life expectancy from the very beginning of the 1900s up until the middle of the century And after age 65, at that time, only about 60% of people had health insurance.
0: Which was a, a bad deal. In fact, in 1935, when Social Security Act was passed, the average life expectancy in America was 62 or 63 years. So the majority of Americans would never collect Social Security at that
1: point. That's right. And even in 1965, when it was passed, for men, the life expectancy was 67 Right. So maybe guys are on it for two years. Women's life expectancy was a little higher. But now in 2019, men and women are both living a decade longer. And so that leads to some of our cost problems. Or
0: more. Yes, uh, ex- that's an excellent point. And back in 1965, older adults were paying three times as much for health insurance as younger people. So uh, it was either unavailable or unaffordable for them. Well, on July 30th of 1965, uh, the president, uh, Johnson, signed this into law. And so it came into effect January 1st, 1966. And one of the byproducts of Medicare was that it spurred racial integration.
1: This was a neat thing that I, I kind of learned as we were looking at some of this material. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. And, and the reason is for a doctor to be able to accept Medicare, he had to accept all patients eligible on Medicare regardless of race, religion, sex, etc. cetera. I,
1: I really liked seeing that because that was a situation where good was achieved through kind of coercion, although it did give me pause because it, it showed the kind of power the government had to influence the way you do things.
0: Yes, but this was one time when they used it for good. Thank goodness. Well, in 1972, uh, they decided that not only the elderly would be included in Medicare, and this included dialysis patients. When people with end-stage renal disease, kidneys that weren't working anymore, they would die without dialysis. And dialysis was starting to become available for the masses.
1: And this this was a huge discussion in Congress. I remember they spent a lot of time while I was in medical school actually talking about this, in insofar as how much can you spend on a person because it, if I'm right, it was about $50,000 a year to keep those folks alive. And they said, gee whiz, this is something we can spend. And they decided, yes, in fact, we were going to go ahead and do that.
0: That's amazing. Uh, well, 10 years after that, 1982, hospice benefits were added to Medicare uh, beneficiaries. Uh, and then in 1997, we start to get the ABCDs of, of Medicare. Uh, we already had Part A of Medicare which is what pays for hospital, inpatient, uh, and skilled nursing and hospice services. And uh, Medicare Part A is free to everybody who is eligible for Medicare. Yeah,
1: anybody who's worked at least 10 years to qualify. Otherwise, you can buy, buy in with a premium.
0: Got it. Very good. And then Medicare Part B is what we use for our typical outpatient care, uh, outpatient hospital charges, uh, most office visits with a physician, and even uh, professionally administered prescription drugs.
1: That would be things like chemotherapy or drugs you get in a doctor's office.
0: Injections, IVs, exactly. Well, in 1997, President Clinton signed Medicare Part C into law, which uh, I didn't even understand what this was until I researched it. And I'm sure Andrew understands it better than I do. But this is managed Medicare.
1: This is what they call the Medicare Advantage Plans where instead of having Part A and Part B for your health care needs, and then we're gonna talk about Part D for drugs, these um, Medicare Advantage plans, as they're called, lumps it all into one thing, and it's sold by a private insurer like Blue Cross or something like that. So it's instead of your traditional Medicare.
0: And they are supposed to pay physicians the same rates that the government-run Medicare pays. Correct. So. I never understood, what's the advantage part of it?
1: The advantage for patients would be that it's a one-stop shop, so you don't have to have multiple plans. And it also allows different types of cost-sharing models, so different premiums and different deductibles. Some of them have like dental and vision coverage that is not included in regular Medicare. But there's also limitations, like you're usually confined to a certain network. And if your doctor's out of network, you would need a different plan. So there's definitely some advantages to it, but the devil's in the details. Part D is part of the standard Medicare options as well. This would be included in an Advantage plan, but outside of that, with traditional Medicare, many people buy Part D insurance, which is prescription drug coverage.
0: Right, and that came in under um, the second George Bush in 2006. This was passed by Congress. Well, then after 2006, one of the next big changes, and I don't have a year for it, but it's, it's current now, is that Medicare not only covers those 65 and over, not only those with end-stage renal disease, uh, but also covers those uh, with a chronic disability if they have been on Social Security payments for at least 24 months So, there are many people who start to receive Social Security benefits before the age of 65.
1: Right. And that's where people, you know, if someone has a severe chronic medical problem, getting declared disabled will allow them to get those benefits.
0: Yes, it will. And right currently in the United States, there are about 60 million people even covered by Medicare. 52 million of them are 65 or older, which means there's 8 million people on Medicare uh, who are younger than the age of 65.
1: And one of the things we wanted to touch on also is how is Medicare financed?
0: Yeah, where does the money come from? Uh, Does Santa Claus give it to us? Daddy Warbucks? (laughs) Uh, Actually, no, none of these. Is it a Star Trek economy where everything's free? No. No, it comes from a combination of the payroll tax, uh, beneficiary premiums, uh, surtaxes from beneficiaries, co-pays, deductibles, and the black box of the general U.S. Treasury revenue. This, of course, is from the Medicare uh, website. So about half of payments—and this stunned me—half of care expenses for enrollees are covered by Medicare, but the other half is not.
1: Yeah, it's which is a lot of money. I mean, when we're talking about these these kinds of people being covered, this is a lot of money. And one of the things that I'm always conscious of is you always hear news articles or read read articles or hear news stories that Medicare is not going to last. And they found different ways to continue financing it. But one of the things that strikes me, not only is the, the life expectancy gone a lot higher, which we discussed, but also the replacement rate. So when this was established in 1965, the replacement or the fertility rate uh, a lady was having, I was
0: wondering what you were talking about replacing. Replacing people replacing who are dying.
1: People who are dying, yes. Well, and paying <laughs> into this to, to exactly. pay. Exactly. You got young working people to pay for old people. And who by the way,
0: stop. your co hosts are doing our part because between us so far, we have 13 future Medicare beneficiaries. Or do you have, are you at five now or six? Uh,
1: six is cooking.
0: All right, there we go. So that's 13 future Think of all Medicare those little taxpayers. Beneficiaries, yes.
1: That's right. And so that, <laughs> or benef-
0: or, or payers, not beneficiaries. That's right.
1: Hopefully beneficiaries, although we'll see if it's still there. <laughs> In 1965, the number of children per lady was at 2.91, and it had already been falling after the advent of the birth control pill. However, that's still about three kids per lady. Replacement rate, where a country's population will stay the same, is at 2.1. In 2016, the most recent numbers I could find were at 1.8. So we are not having enough babies, despite my best efforts, to (laughs) maintain the population in this country. And his (laughs) (laughs) wife's. That's right. Uh, To maintain the population in this country to pay for Medicare. And so that is one of the big underlying things, the demographic winter, as as some people call it, as to why we run into a cost problem here.
0: Yes, absolutely, and because people are are living longer. Well, we're going to um, go to something else that uh, Andrew finds interesting, dealing with donuts.
1: Yes, the the donut (laughs) hole. You know, we were talking about the different parts, Medicare Part A is the hospital, Part B is the outpatient services. Part C is the Medicare Advantage. And then Part D is the drugs, D for drugs. There's an idea called the donut hole where Medicare will pay for some of your drug costs initially, but you are on the hook for an indeterminate time in the middle. It's actually not indeterminate. In 2019, it's $3,800. And then Medicare starts paying for it again. How much
0: do they pay before the donut hole?
1: Before the donut hole, let me see. I've got that here somewhere. The
0: first side of the donut on your way through.
1: Mm. I'm, I'm losing that amongst the scribbles. <laughs> but fear not, in 2020, the donut hole is going away. Oh. And so the donut hole will be gone for, for our listeners. And then at that point, Medicare Part D, 25% will be the maximum cost. 25% of the drug will be the maximum cost per patient. And currently, there, there is some relief for people who have extraordinarily high drug costs. After that person spends $5,100 a year, then they're only on the hook for 5% of the drug costs. Oh. So there's there's some intricacies there. Um, one other thing that I wanted to bring up, these are the, the standard for, but People might have heard of other Medicare's, Medicare Part E, FG, I've never et heard of this. Teach um, me. <laughs> so, these the, Medicare Part E is, is out of service now, but there are several other ones, including F, G, H, K, L, M, KLM, and N, that are what we call Medigap plans. Medigap. So, this, these would be plans that you would purchase through a private insurer, not through the U.S. government, to cover your out of pocket costs. Because even with traditional Medicare Part A, every time you go to the hospital, you have a deductible, which is about $1,300 currently for every hospitalization, Um, plus coinsurance when you go see your family doctor, you're going to have to pay a percentage of that, usually about 20%. These Medigap plans are a little bit different, but they pay for your out-of-pocket costs.
0: And you can buy them from the typical uh, private insurers that other people have for all their insurance. Isn't that right?
1: Precisely. And so a lot of people have a menagerie of these coverages. And so, definitely, we'd encourage folks who are looking into this to get expert help because it is an alphabet soup and extraordinarily confusing.
0: Yes, and we are not those experts. <laughs> we like taking care of patients, but patient finances, even our own healthcare finances, makes our head spin
1: sometimes. However, we do have an expert trivia question maker here.
0: Oh, my. So, another two part, and this one's a true or false, and it's on Medicare. First, true-false. If you are at least 65 years old and receiving Social Security benefits, you must enroll in Medicare Part A, which is hospital coverage. And if you don't, you must repay all Social Security benefits you have received to date. Is that true or false? Ooh. The second one, once you enroll in Medicare, the annual monthly premium you pay is the same as all other people regardless of current income at the age you enroll. Is that true or false? So meditate on these during the break. See what you come up with, because the answer will be after our interview with Senator Todd Young here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with our special guest today, Senator Todd Young of Indiana, who was sworn in On January third, two 2017, after serving three terms uh, in the House of Representatives for Indiana's 9th District, he's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in Political Science, served for five years in the U.S. Marine Corps, and got his MBA at the University of Chicago and a law degree at Indiana University. He has a 100% pro-life voting record from the National Right to Life Committee, and he serves on the Senate Finance Committee and its subcommittee on health care. Senator Todd Young, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
2: Dr. Doctor, great to be with you both.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Senator. Hey, it (laughs) seems like many of the bills that you've been introducing or co-sponsoring have been related to health care. Why are you so interested in this?
2: Well, listen, um, I hear about health care as I travel around Indiana, speak to Hoosiers. I often have round table conversations. I visit people, you know, really where they work, play, live, pray sometimes. And um, this consistently comes up. Though people are enjoying rising wages, though uh, we've done a great job of getting the economy moving again, and, and there's actually uh, a, a real shortage of qualified employees oftentimes to fill different spots, uh, all those are good things uh, from a worker's perspective. But uh, you, you got to look at the other end of the financial statement uh, that households are experiencing, and uh, one of their key expenditures that People talk about that continues to rise is health care so it's our obligation to make sure that we inject more competition more transparency into the system and uh, try and drive down the cost of care so that uh, so everyone can have access uh, to the basic services they need
0: is there anything that you've experienced in your life or in your family which makes you specifically attuned to health care or is it what you said mostly just from visiting different people around your state that you represent?
2: Oh, there's, you know, probably like most of your listeners and and, and uh, certainly each of you as doctors, uh, we've all had life events that are really impactful uh, for us. So for me, it was the birth of each of my four children. <laughs> I can remember those hospital experiences. And, you know, blessedly, I had health insurance and, and didn't have to worry about, you know, uh, various complications associated with how certain things are going to be paid for. You know, there was a a period when well, we had an emergency room visit as a family, and it was good to know that uh, we had competent medical personnel there and that on the back end of it there again, I wasn't going to be socked with a big bill, uh, although there's another sto- sub-story that we could talk about there. And then recently, there's somebody very close to me who's a senior citizen uh, who found themselves, you know, really in, in a bad state, um, in a long-term care facility, and uh, we're still kind of working through that. So, you know, uh, w- what I have just put before, you know, fellow Hoosiers, is the sort of things uh, that a lot of people encounter, but many people don't have the benefit of decent health insurance and accessible health care like, blessedly, I have.
0: Now, some uh, a point I'd like to make for our listeners is many of them may not exactly be aware of what this Veterans Administration health care system is. I was an active duty Army physician for eight years, and that's a different system, taking care of active duty, their dependents and retirees, than the VA system is. Could you give our listeners a little primer on what VA medical care is?
2: Sure. Uh, VA medical care, which I do not utilize, but um, it is an entirely different parallel state-run system, a government-run system that serves uh, our nation's veterans. It's sort of an oddity uh, to to many of us when you you look at it. Um, It it does train a number of doctors, and and many veterans are happy with the quality of care it offers, but uh, it's a parallel health care system, parallel to the normal a uh, battery of doctor's offices and clinics and hospitals that operate around the country and exists solely to take care of veterans who've served for a number of years.
1: And I know veterans care is one of the things you're very passionate about. Can you tell us a little bit about the VA Mission Act?
2: Sure, absolutely. Well, um, because the Veterans Administration uh, facilities are, are run by the federal government, sometimes uh, they're plagued with more challenges, to put it charitably, than <laughs> uh, uh, than than other facilities and systems and. Uh, And and there are some problems over the years, to put it mildly, with the way the uh, VA is run. One is convenience in in, um, not having facilities located real close to the veterans uh, when they need them. So the VA Mission Act is supposed to solve or help resolve some of these longstanding problems that we've seen with veterans' access to care. Men and women uh, who've worn the uniform and sworn to protect and defend the Constitution need to be protected and defended as well uh, in terms of healthcare. And so that means letting them use their own local doctors as opposed to having to use a VA doctor that may be located many, many miles away from their hometown. And um, it also means uh, giving greater access to veterans uh, who want to use telehealth services. So there again, they don't have to travel a long distance when they're unwell or they need a basic health care um, service.
0: Could you give us a scenario uh, of a patient that this would, how it would help change their life if the Mission Act goes through?
2: Absolutely. Let me give you two examples, in Great. fact. So I, I I used to live in uh, Bloomington, and I now live just south of Indianapolis, but I was a member of the largest American Legion post in the state when I lived in Bloomington, so I'd interact with veterans all the time, and they would frequently lament, uh, because many were uh, up there in years, they, they had fought for their country, and they'd lament the fact that when they really had an illness, they had to wait for a volunteer to pack them into a van, let's say they had a flu, Pack yes. them into a van and take them all the way up to Indianapolis for care.
0: To spread the flu to someone well, else. Well, I mean that <laughs> in the van. Yeah,
2: spread the flu to <laughs> spread the spread the flu to uh, tons of other people. That's not um, very good service, you know, I you mean. You were that horrible condition. Yes. Well, what what do you and I do? Well, we just go to our local doctor and take care of it. And so the VA Mission Act would give a one of those veterans <clears throat> the ability to just go to their local doctor when they get the flu to take care of it. Uh, another example would be is if you live in a more uh, rural area of the state, say you live in uh, Crawford County, Indiana, you know kind of rural southern part of Indiana, uh, and there aren't a lot of medical facilities around. You may not have a specialist, a dermatologist for uh, you know an hour and a half, two hours away, you may not own a car. Well, if we can bring telehealth services into these rural communities through the Veterans administration, we can not only save. Uh, time and uh, uh, the inconvenience uh, of this veteran from, from having to travel this distance, but oftentimes we can save a lot of money as well, so it's, it's just more efficient. So telehealth services would allow a dermatologist to look at a blemish on a hand or a face, and um, uh, you know a dermatologist could, could be much more efficient in the process.
0: Yes, we could, As a speaking as a yeah. <laughs> dermatologist who removes skin cancer all day long. So one of okay. the things among veterans that you're particularly concerned about is post-traumatic stress disorder and, and mental health in general. Tell us what you're trying to do That's in right. this area.
2: Well, you know, we need to treat mental health with the same level of rigor and parity as we do physical health. And I think we're... You know, making some strides culturally uh, in this country, people are starting to recognize that the problems inside of us, the problems sometimes in in our heads are every bit as serious as, as the problems that uh, we see on our bodies. And um, that's, a, that's a positive thing, but we still have a ways to go. So one specific thing I've done uh, working with Congressman Banks, in fact, is to check under the hood of the Veterans Crisis Hotline. The VA operates a suicide prevention line. I'll go ahead and and give folks a number. It's 800-273-8255. And we think it's working. But like so many government programs, it's never been rigorously evaluated. Ah. So Congressman Banks and I passed legislation to actually evaluate uh, that service and make improvements so that it can be an effective resource in preventing veteran suicide. So it's good government. It's doing what most folks would do in the private sector, which is test something to make sure it's serving your customers, your constituents. And um, it's especially important uh, that we do it for those who have uh, who've put their lives on the line oftentimes for this country.
0: Do we know why veteran suicides are increasing?
2: We, we're not entirely sure. Um, you know, I read a book not long ago. It's called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. And Sebastian Younger's thesis, it's very interesting, he speaks directly to this issue, is that biologically, each of us uh, is adapted to sort of a hunter-gatherer existence. We live in tribes. We live in really small units, like platoons. (laughs) uh, And it takes hundreds of thousands of years for uh, a, a human being's biology to change, right? And it hasn't changed from the hunter-gatherer days. Um, So that's essentially the existence that people are living in when they're deployed overseas in a military unit. Then they return to um, a a modern economy, a modern society like the United States. And and, uh, let's face it, uh, (laughs) our modern society can be kind of lonely, kind of individualistic. And um, to, to have that That quick transition from a tribal sort of existence to a atomized, lonely uh, existence uh, can uh, make somebody's brain unwell. It can lead to PTSD. And I found that a pretty compelling, a pretty persuasive uh, theory. It turns on its head that the problem is not per se with with the veteran. The problem is also with us. Our culture. We need to make sure that. Yes, we need to make sure that people have support systems so that they don't uh, get on well. And if they do, they have people around uh, who love them and take care of them.
0: This segues really well with a psychiatrist we had on earlier this year talking about deaths of despair. And she said that if yes. 40% of adults are asked to name their best friend, they cannot name one friend. And so yes. your point about loneliness when they leave the tribe, I think there's a lot of truth to that.
2: Well, I do too, and that's why when I when I visit, especially young school groups, um, I ask everyone with whom I visit to serve. You see, that may sound unusual to some of your listeners. You're asking school children to serve. Yes, because all of us are given gifts from God, and um, I encourage people to develop a habit of service and yes. assess your own godly gifts. One of them is presence and love. And um, if, if you are present and loving and you knock on uh, your neighbor's door and there's a senior citizen uh, who happens to live alone and you just say hello, uh, that's a gift to that man or woman. Yes. And um, we need to do more of that, not just as children, but as adults. This starts at a young age. And, and uh, I think uh, there's a lot each of us can do to address uh, our fellow Americans' loneliness.
1: Amen. So that,
0: that was very nice, very well said. Now, With the VA, I think one uh, concrete question is, who qualifies to get care at a VA facility? Is it anyone who's ever been in the military, or is it a little higher bar than that?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a higher bar than that. Uh, there are service-connected disabilities that uh, will qualify one to get the healthcare at a veterans facility. You need to be uh, you need be examined by the Veterans Administration or by the military. Discharged as a veteran who has a service connected uh, disability, or if you've spent a, a number of years in the military and retired from the military, you could also access care at uh, one of these facilities. I spent five years active duty in the U.S. Marine Corps. I uh, did not leave the service with serious um, injuries, and uh, therefore I do not access, nor does my family access, health care from the Veterans Administration.
0: What do you see as the future for VA medical care? What's, what's your hope for that?
2: Well, my hope is that uh, it's going to continue to uh, Become better and better because uh, folks like myself and 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 Congressman Banks and Congressman Baird and, and Congressman Pence, all of whom served in the military, Congressman Bouchon. We got a lot of veterans in our delegation. Wow! You know, we're we're really focused on on making sure that every year the VA is in operation, it, it makes some improvement. So let me say the future is promising. The Trump administration, in particular has really demonstrated it's committed to serving veterans, and this Congress has been committed to serving veterans through passage of the uh, VA Mission Act, uh, which I mentioned earlier, which would allow a veteran to get access to healthcare in their local community. We've also passed an Appeals Modernization Act, and this is important because it upgrades an old legacy computer system at the Veterans Administration that led to really long wait times when you yes. appeal the d- decision from what I'll call bureaucrats <laughs> trying to determine whether or not you, you were eligible for certain health care services and, and benefits. So we've upgraded that. That will significantly reduce uh, wait times. And look, here's my view. Um, no veteran should ever, ever die while waiting seven or eight years for a benefit appeal to be uh, processed. And that's been happening. So I think the future is going to be far more promising.
0: And has the Mission Act passed yet?
2: Yes. Yeah, it's being implemented. Good. And uh, I am hearing positive things. The initial implementation, like many things, had had some wrinkles to be worked out. But I'm hearing very positive things as I travel around um, the great state of Indiana.
0: And this is a good place to take a break from our fascinating interview with Senator Todd Young. We'll be right back with more after the break on Dr. Doctor. We're now back with Senator Todd Young of Indiana, who serves on the Subcommittee for Health Care on the Senate's Finance Committee.
1: Senator Young, to, to turn the topic just a little bit, we, we recently did a show on our program here on vaping and the electronic cigarettes. I know one of the things you've, you've worked on is raising the age for smoking. T- can you tell us about that a little bit?
2: Well, sure. Um, Every PTA uh, meeting, really most family rooms around the state of Indiana and so much of the country uh, is has been filled in in recent months with conversation about a vaping epidemic or e-cigarette epidemic in yes. this country, because young children are starting to use these these vaping pods. Right. where one pod has as much nicotine as an entire pack of cigarettes.
0: You are up to speed, um, Senator.
2: <laughs> oh, a- absolutely. They're marketed oftentimes towards young people with flavors like bubble gum and yes. cotton candy and and other things. So, I thought this was a real problem when you had, you know, the the 16-year-olds getting them passing them on to their 14-year-old friends. My daughter's 13 and she goes to a, a good school south of Indianapolis. The kids are you know, I, I find them to be pretty polite kids and so forth. But uh, she came home last March, uh, if I recall, and she said, Dad, there are going to be no more school functions. And I said, why? You know, what happened? She said, well, some of the kids kept vaping in the bathrooms, and uh, they didn't know how to control it, so they just canceled the rest of the school functions. Oh my I'm like, goodness. all right, this is, this is completely out of hand. It really hit close to home. So what my legislation does is it would increase the age of purchase. Of tobacco products to 21 uh, knowing that 95% of uh, adults who smoke begin before the age of 21. We don't want to reverse the incredible progress we've made since the 60s in stigmatizing the use of tobacco products and uh, unwind all of that process which will be a massive public health expenditure to say noth- nothing of the human cost, the human toll it, it takes. And uh, certainly young, impressionable people who are age 13 or 14 just aren't mature enough to be able to make these decisions. So we need to protect our young people. Um, it looks like there's broad bipartisan support from my legislation. And even in very conservative Indiana, uh, this has been an off-the-charts popular initiative Good. as I travel around the states and I'm really proud of that. I think we're going to get it done hopefully before years end. We're,
1: we're really excited to hear that. And I, I know talking from some friends of mine in the insurance industry, they talk about how, it, just like you said, nobody really starts after they're older. And we know as physicians how the, the developing brain becomes really addicted to nicotine in a way that an older brain is not as susceptible so i think you know in in our discussions about trying to keep healthcare costs down we're always looking about you know how much are we spending this would be a way to prevent who knows how many billions of dollars of savings by preventing disease
2: it there there are just so many benefits to this right um people are complaining about healthcare premiums well Um, We don't want people to get hooked, as you say, at a young age on on nicotine or on average their health care premiums over the course of their lifetime will consistently be 20% higher than non-smokers. The Surgeon General of the United States and each of the military services said that this is a critical military readiness issue for them. So our military services are behind this initiative. Senator, Um, are you aware of uh, any
0: jurisdictions in the world or the country where the the tobacco purchase age is twenty one or higher.
2: Um, I am not aware of of uh, of the of you know international you know sort of uh, legal framework for this. Uh, all I know is that uh, all the public health experts I consulted with, from the Surgeon General Jerome Adams, who happens to be a Hoosier, to the <laughs> dean of the IU School of Public Health said, if there is one thing that you want to do yes. to address that 80% of that health care expenditure, 80% is, is a, uh, social determinants of health, Yes. You know, what we eat, how we live, and so forth. Correct. He said the number one public policy measure you can take is to increase the age of purchase for uh, tobacco products. Oh, yes, um, i was and, just curious. And, and, and I... he said there's going to be he said there'll be some vested big companies who will be a, against you, opposing oh, yes. you. He said, I don't care. I am in. If this means protecting our young people,
0: just wondering if how uh, how the rate of smoking was in, in such a place. Well, we know another thing near and dear to your heart. Uh, pun intended, is organ procurement services <laughs> and how uh, transplant organs are available. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're corny here, too. So what uh, what would you like our listeners to know about the status of organ pur- procurement and what you're trying to do about it?
1: And what does organ procurement even mean? <laughs>
2: yeah, you know, organ procurement, it starts for most of us when we go to the, uh, the uh, Bureau of Motor Vehicles and we get our driver's license and they ask us if we want to be an organ donor if something were to happen to us i happen to be an organ donor not everyone is right and then should we pass uh, uh, our organs could be used uh, to sustain others lives to improve others lives uh, uh, by by using pieces of us right Um, there are other organs uh, like for example you know one's uh, kidney that uh, we we have more than one of, and and, and so uh, we we can donate certain organs and and still continue to live. And uh, uh, there are many brave and loving people that do that as well. So, listen, the organ procurement system is, in the end, it is something that is regulated by and should be overseen by our federal government. There's an association out there that is uh, supposed to coordinate all the activities uh, of, of various procurement organizations and make sure that the organs that are donated find their way to people who need them, and uh, we sustain lives and improve lives. Well, this system is so complex, very few people know how it works, only people on the inside, and there's a shortage, there's a long wait, wait line to receive vital organs. This is why we have dialysis centers full of, uh, of people. This is why oftentimes we have uh, friends and loved ones, as I have, who have died waiting on an organ transplant. In fact, somebody I served with in uh, the Marine Corps uh, several years ago died waiting on a, on a new heart. So organ procurement organizations or OPOs, they're the government monopoly contractors who are responsible for getting these organs. Their performance is, is measured by data that, by their own admission, is self reported, unaudited, and fraught with errors. So, new research shows that some OPOs, just in short, aren't doing their jobs and they're preventing thousands of lives from being saved every single year. And I've introduced legislation. Here again, this is going to have bipartisan support that would require the nation's 58 OPOs to be held to metrics that are objective, verifiable, and not subject to self-interpretation. So you can't grade your own test. We want meaningful transparency, evaluation, accountability, all the stuff that people want from business, government, whatever. And make, by making these changes, to kind of close this thing out, I know we can increase the supply of organs, we can prevent waste, and most importantly, we can increase the number of transplants, and therefore, we don't have to get into these regional battles, which we've had recently, over organ allocation. Is that an Indiana liver or a California <laughs> liver? You oh, know? I mean, that's, that's insane. We should not have to uh, be Agreed. doing that.
1: Yep. Well, Senator Young, we really appreciate you going through some of your bills, and I appreciate the difficulty of finding things with bipartisan support you know, in our current political climate before you leave i w- I wanted to get your thoughts at least on one thing that is not really bipartisan, but this idea that we're talking to our listeners about uh, called Medicare for All and the cost of care. I know you're on on the subcommittee for medicare can you Can you tell us a little bit about that? that situation, what you see that doing, just to the costs of care?
2: Yeah, so uh, Medicare for all, uh, it, would, it would undermine the, the Medicare guarantee, first of all. This is something that Democrats, uh, every time Republicans uh, try to make improvements to the program, accuse Republicans of. But um, Medicare for all, uh, you've heard the phrase probably by now. Uh, in short, would be Medicare for none. The cost, <laughs> if you implemented this program, is estimated to be around $4 trillion. So you cannot tax the rich. There aren't enough rich people to get that sort of money. You can't tax corporations to get that money. There aren't enough corporations. You can't slash military spending. Uh, there's just not enough of it to pay for $4 trillion. That's like our entire economy. I mean, I, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's going to be such a weight on our economy. So the cost estimates that I've seen are based on current Medicare reimbursement rates. So those are not made-up numbers. And I've talked to a lot of hospitals and health care providers and asked them, what would happen if everyone paid Medicare rates? Okay, so no more private insurance, no more employer-provided insurance, Everyone pays Medicare rates. Are you going to stay in business? And there is not a hospital or other health care provider yet who has said they could uh, keep their doors open uh, if Medicare for all went into place.
1: So that would put us in a new a new catastrophe of not having anybody to do the work.
2: That's right. Well, at first it put us out a lot of money trying to <laughs> implement this. Uh, And and then second, we discover that it was a complete government takeover disaster. And so, look, why don't we instead, why don't we look at some of the discrete challenges of our system, some of the specific challenges of our system, and work on solving those piece by piece by piece, incrementally. We don't need one massive bill to reform one-sixth of our economy. Let's work on what we have. Recognize there's some real serious flaws. Emphasize more openness, transparency, more competition, and let's let's start there. Let's focus on preventative health and primary care. Right? Preventative health, I, as I indicated earlier. Eight out of every $10 is is attributable to non-medical services or social determinants of health. Let's focus on that. There's a lot that I think we could agree on here. Unfortunately, national Democrats, who have been really far to the left on this recently, are, are wanting to repeal the system we have and replace it with Medicare for all.
0: So that's why we're not really hearing of a coalescing plan opposed to Medicare for All, because really many like you, and we've also talked to Senator Mike Braun on our show, we've talked to Congressman Banks, it sounds like you're trying to find areas where there is agreement across the aisle yes. to get things done. And how much agreement are you seeing across the aisle on some of the issues you just mentioned?
2: Actually, a lot. There's over 80 different bipartisan health care bills right wow. now. That, we don't that hear about that in bundled. the news. No. I know you don't. You don't. Uh, you, you normally hear from folks who are yelling at one another yes. and, and that makes more news. But there's about 80 different cost reduction, common sense, bipartisan health care bills that are ready to be wrapped together, taken to the floor of the U.S. Senate, the House of Representatives, and signed into law by this president. But... They, as I said they're they're a bundle of of discrete solutions to define problems, and then let's work on the next bundle after that. Let's not just completely throw out you know the world's greatest uh, medical innovation industry and our medical device industry. let's not let's not uh, let's make sure we bring down the cost of prescription drugs, which some of those bills do but not ruin our, our, our pharma industry. You know, there are a lot of things that we can do without destroying our existing system. And that's my preference and most Republicans' preference as opposed to a revolution. We need an evolution in healthcare. Oh, I, well said. I like that. I like that. Senator
1: Young, what, what can <laughs> our listeners do who are passionate about this and, and appreciate the comments you've made? How can, how can our listeners be active in this and let their voice be heard?
2: Well, Dr. Doctor, doctor uh, you will like this answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> first, do no harm. That is the message that your listeners can send to their senators and their members of Congress. And uh, if they prefer uh, to others outside of the boundaries of, of their congressional district or state, uh, make sure that we don't do significant harm to our existing high-quality health care system by implementing some socialistic-seeming scheme like Medicare for All, okay, or some variant of that. And then just ask uh, them to, to work across the aisle where possible and uh, where not possible. Let's, let's embrace incremental solutions, uh, which is what conservatives have always believed in.
0: Senator Todd Young, it's been a pleasure having you here on Dr. Doctor. Doctor. Thank you so much for your common sense wisdom. God bless you in your work, and we hope to talk to you
2: sometime in the future. God bless you both and your listeners. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the long-awaited answer to our trivia question.
0: Two parts, true and false. So the first one, if you or someone you know is 65 years old and receiving Social Security benefits Must you enroll in Medicare Part A, which is hospital coverage, and free? Because if you don't, you must repay all Social Security money you have received to that date. You know, this sounded draconian to me.
1: Yeah. It it doesn't seem like that they would do that, but in fact, the answer is... True. It is true, which is crazy to me. It
0: is true. So if you've received tens of thousands of dollars from Social Security say, from age 62 on, and at 65, you have to enroll in Medicare Part A, and you refuse to fill out the paperwork, you forfeit all that money back. You have to repay the government.
1: And I was trying to kind of figure out why they did this, but in reality, part of it is a cost problem as well. Um, At least part of it is the premiums that they're going to deduct from Medicare when you enroll, right? Right and so part of it is paying for medicare so if you don't need health insurance and you want to just stand stand down stay out of it they're losing out on those premiums you would have paid to help subsidize somebody else's so that that is i think part of the reason why you really kind of coerce it is kind of mandatory coverage yes
0: and then the second part is once you enroll in medicare the annual monthly premium you pay is the same regardless of current income. Do you think that's true or false?
1: Well, this is America; it's got to be all the same, right?
0: <laughs> right, except that the answer is false. <laughs> so, um, I was I was kind of surprised by this, uh, but um, I guess you know, right now in two thousand nineteen, the lowest premium that people pay monthly for Medicare is one hundred thirty-five dollars and fifty cents. Those fifty cents must be important. And then the highest adjusted gross income rate is $460.50. That must be a really important $0.50. So uh, over a three-fold difference in cost for the same care.
1: And this is withheld from your Social Security benefits. So before you get the Social Security check, they'll withhold this already.
0: Now, can people over 65 uh, go without receiving Medicare?
1: That's a good question.
0: Uh, they can uh, under certain circumstances. Uh, number one, you're not yet collecting Social Security.
1: Oh, if you postpone Social Security till 67.
0: Can't it be postponed till even later than that? It may be able
1: to. I'm not sure on uh, that. I can't
0: remember what the age is. I researched
1: is. Medicare, Tom, not Social Security. Yes.
0: Uh, something <laughs> in my head says the age is 70 or so, but I, I'm not sure of that. But that's the, you know, I've seen physicians over 65 who are not yet on Medicare uh, and that's a situation. But if you are 65 and receiving Social Security, you must go on to Medicare.
1: And probably if you're still working and have employer coverage, that might be...
0: Yes, that's un- typically the situation of those people mm-hmm. who, uh, who don't do that. And then, uh, as you said earlier, Medicare Part A is free for people who have worked at least 10 years uh, or like our wives, who are married to someone who is eligible or will be eligible for Medicare. Because my wife worked outside the home for less than 10 years before working inside the home for greater than 10 years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No no credit for that.
0: I give her lots of credit for that. But the government, unfortunately, well, the government does because she was doing it with somebody who was uh, paying into the system.
1: Well, and... The way they determine these premiums is based on your last or latest available tax return, right? Right. So, so it's th- kind of a gradient.
0: Right. So, you know, just uh, one thought on Senator Young. I think the most amazing thing that you commented on that he said was that there are currently 80 bipartisan health care bills in Congress. We don't hear about that.
1: You know, that's that's something I wish we read about. And yes. that, that would it's be an good opportunity. News. Because we hear about so much division. In, in politics especially, and so often we're talking about stuff I talk about with patients, how come everybody doesn't agree on this? Well, it turns out there's a lot of stuff people agree on, and it's just having its trouble making its way through both chambers and up to the president. So we can only hope and advocate for common-sense solutions to get done that everybody agrees on.
0: I hope so. So I, I found you know the discussion with Senator Young fascinating. I learned a lot of new things.
1: I really appreciated his explanation, especially of the organ procurement situation, which I was not super familiar with, and his efforts with the smoking age. I mean, that is something that is very common sense and part of the role of government is to ensure common welfare. That's going to help everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the CMA, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to past episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts.
1: And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be interviewing Dr. Tom Katina, who is perhaps the most important doctor in the world, serving at least a million and a half people as the only doctor in Sudan.
0: This is Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And Dr. Andrew Malali signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.